Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. So the question for today is, how do you respond when God messes with your expectations, your understanding, even we could say your theology? How do you respond when God messes with that? We're going to begin today by reading uh, the main text for today, so you can follow along in the gospel. We're looking at Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. The gospel writer Luke records this. He says, When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. And then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple, and he began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house shall be be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day, he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So today we begin a new series looking at the week that changed the world. Uh, We're going to work through the final events of the final week of Jesus' ministry on earth. 
Uh, this starts with Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. That's what we're looking at today. It proceeds through this week as there's these rising tensions, Jesus being questioned in the, in the temple by the religious authorities and kind of confounding them with his answers. And then eventually we have Passover and the Lord's Supper, Judas' betrayal of Jesus, Jesus' prayer in the garden, then Jesus' condemnation by first the Sanhedrin and then by Pilate, and then his crucifixion, his burial, and then his resurrection. And we have this mapped out so that we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. So we're kind of counting down to Easter in this series. And so I'm so glad you're here today or watching online or joining us because this really is the week that changed the world. And this is, um, it's history, and it's also um, history-changing history. So today we're looking at this triumphal entry and uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. What's going on there? Hopefully I'll be able to not just ask your questions about why is this happening? Why are the people praising him? Um, but also look at its significance and application for us today. And again, the question I want you to consider and ask yourself is, how will you respond when God messes with your expectations of Jesus? When in some way and somehow God shows you that you were wrong? How do you respond to that? It's not fun. No one likes being wrong, especially when it comes to something as important as what you believe about God. So now we're going to work our way back through, and I kind of broke this up into three pieces. Um, free donkey rides. <laughs> Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on donkey. What's that about? Um, cleaning house, the cleansing of the temple, what's going on there? And then finally, when Jesus stops and weeps, and what's going on there, and what does that communicate to us? So let's start uh, with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, they're at the Mount of Olives, it says, which is about, uh, it's actually just right outside of Jerusalem. Um, and you can see all of Jerusalem from this hill. And so they're coming down this hill from Bethany and Jesus sends two of the disciples in front of him, right? Um, go get this, this colt tied there. Now, Luke doesn't include this detail, but we know from other gospel writers that it's not just any colt, it's actually a donkey. And this is uh, clearly written to um, fulfill Zechariah 19. But I love too how Jesus, um, there's something prophetic going on here, right? Like there's something special going on where Jesus says, no, like you'll find one. I know where you'll find it. Go into the village, you'll find one. A donkey on which no one has ever sat and bring it, bring it to me. And if anyone asks, you say the Lord needs it. And I, you know, I'd love to try this at like the, the car place, right? Just get in a Ferrari and be like, the Lord needs it. See you later. <laughs> I don't think that would work as well for me. Uh, but it worked for Jesus, right? You have to know that something behind the scenes miraculous, right? God must have communicated to the owners, like, Lord needs it. And I, I also assume they brought it back afterwards, right? They didn't, they didn't need it after this ride. I think they brought it back afterwards. <laughs> and then I love to... Uh, so some of the details that are just interesting, right? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. Now, the idea seems to be that something is more set apart or sacred if it's never been used for any other use, right? Like, think about your, your special china that you only bring out on special occasions. Or even the first time you bought maybe special china. The first time you bring it out, like, that's special, the first use of something. And that seems to be the idea with making sure that this is a cult on which no one has ever ridden before. This is a set-of-heart special donkey for Jesus to ride on. 
And then people are throwing their clothes uh, on the road, right? Isn't that weird? Again, though, this is uh, definitely a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet. And he said, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. And by the way, Zion is talking about the city of Jerusalem. So first of all, this is very political because this is the capital of Israel. If you said, rejoice, Washington, D.C., we're not just saying, you city, be happy, right? It means there's good news politically going on, right? So when, when Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, uh, shout and triumph, daughter Jerusalem, this is political news happening. He says, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah, hundreds of years before this happened, sees that God's king would eventually come. It would be good news for Jerusalem and that the king would come riding on a donkey. And a lot of, has been made of this, like, why a donkey? And the short answer is because it's not a war horse. Because he's the king of peace. He's not coming in the way everyone expected, this conquering king. He's coming at this point in peace, not of warfare. So this is this fulfillment of prophecy, um, revealing his identity as the king of peace, not of warfare, not a typical king, not the kind of king they're used to. And interesting, even with this prophecy, not the kind of king that they're all looking for, right? They're all expecting this uh, Jesus to bring a sword, to take off his rabbi robes. I've heard people say, like, take off his rabbi clothes, put on his conquering king Messiah clothes, right? You got the big M for Messiah or something on his chest. That's what they're looking for, right? Like, pull out the sword and start doing battle against the Romans. Let's go, Jesus. And it says this, it says, as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. This is what they did in the Old Testament when Jehu became king. This is in the Old Testament. Each man quickly took his garment, put it under Jehu on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. It's like rolling out the red carpet. It's what you do for royalty. Is what they're doing for Jesus. And so the triumphal entry is this fascinating thing where the crowds do recognize Jesus is more than a rabbi. He's the king we've been waiting for. But then contrasted with that is Jesus's message and how he's doing things. Like, yes, I am the king, but not the one you're expecting or not the kind you're expecting. And the people struggling with that because they want Jesus to fit in their nice little box that they've made for him. And he doesn't. So Jesus came near down uh, the, the, the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. And then they quote Psalm 118, when they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. This is a quote from Psalm 118. Uh, let me read what comes right before this quote, because I think it's important. The psalmist writes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is language that's picked up other places in the New Testament to talk about Jesus, right? That people rejected him, but he's the foundation, the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25, Lord, save us. In Hebrew, this is Hosanna. Have you ever heard people say, Hosanna? If you've uh, been in more traditional churches, sometimes even on Palm Sunday, people bring palm branches and wave them, and they're all shouting, Hosanna. But it means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. 
And isn't it fascinating that the people are shouting, Lord, save us, as they welcome Jesus to Jerusalem. So the people are crying out for God's salvation. And there's this recognition, like things are about to change. God's king is here. This is good news. But again, many of these same people show up seven days later shouting, or actually, no, less than that, five days later, shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. What happened? In short, Jesus was very different than they were expecting. He was a different kind of king than they wanted. And the next again, the, the Pharisees are like, hey, Jesus, get them to quiet down. This is not okay. And it could be that they're saying that, you know, like, Jesus, that's blasphemy, right? They're, they're saying, Lord, save us. And they're shouting this to you. That's not okay. Or maybe they're saying, you know, you're no king. Like, get them to be quiet. But I think just as likely is the fact that they're in Jerusalem where Pilate is and all these Romans stationed there because it's Passover and Jerusalem is bursting at the seams. And this is traditionally when riots happen and crowds get riled up. And what happens in the aftermath of riots? Crucifixions. And innocent Jewish bystanders being suffering. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want to keep people in line, right? And so it could be that they're almost just like, Jesus, shh, Rome's listening. What are you thinking? You're going to get us in trouble. And Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. This reality is so fundamental and so real that creation itself recognizes who Jesus is and will proclaim it if the people don't. So the first question I want to ask you is, would you welcome Jesus? What is the posture of your heart towards Jesus, towards King Jesus? I raise this question because as I sat with this passage this week, it's one of those things where whenever I read something about the life of Jesus, for some reason I always kind of put myself in the shoes of the disciples. And I kind of just assume that had I been there, that's where I would have been. But then as I was sitting with it, I was like, is that true? Is that really where I would be? Or would I have been in, in these crowds being like, yeah, conquering Messiah time. And praising Jesus and welcoming him because I was confused about him. Or could I be like the Pharisees? Saying, shh. What is the posture of your heart towards King Jesus? Is he welcome in your life? Is he welcome in every area of your life? Even if he's different than you want him to be and thought he would be. Let's pick up the story uh, with the cleansing of the temple. Jesus went into the temple. He began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now in your scripture and on screen, you can see this. You see what's in bold there? My house will be a house of prayer. That is a quote from the Old Testament. It puts in bold quotes. And also, um, but you have made it a den of uh, thieves or a den of robbers. That's also a quote. And Jesus is quoting two different Old Testament passages in one sentence here. 
And I think you can get more sense of what's going on um, if, if you look at those. So let's look together at what Jesus is quoting and what he's doing. Um, first of all, Jesus is taking up a strong tradition from the Old Testament. When you look at the different kings of Judah, southern kingdom, who reigned in Jerusalem, some of the best kings were the ones who made sure the temple was cleansed from idolatry. Kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. They were famous partly because in their time, the temple had been filled up with idols, these false gods, and people were worshiping them in the temple precincts. And then when they became king, they were like, this is not okay. And they brought the hammers to the temple and smashed these idols. And so whose job is it to clean house in the temple? It's the king's in some ways, right? And Jesus, when he does that, you have to know that people are like, oh man, that's what Hezekiah did. That's what Josiah did. He's cleansing the temple. But why? And what is he cleansing it of? There's no idols there in Jesus' day. He's not bringing a hammer and smashing images. So what is he cleansing and why? Look with, uh, at the first quote. This is from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah says this. He says, As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant... I will bring them to my holy mountain. This is talking about Jerusalem because it's built on a mountain and the temple is near the top of that. So I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be, ha- will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the de- declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. So when Jesus says, it's written my house should be called a house of prayer, what's he saying? What Isaiah foresaw and prophesied and called the people for indictment for is that the temple in Jerusalem is supposed to be a place where the nations see, wow, your God is the real God. And they come and worship the true God there. And they're invited to worship the true God there, right? Foreigners come, worship with us. And so one piece of what was going on is that in Jesus' day and age, in the temple courts, there was various places within the big temple grounds. And the external part, the, the, you kind of got increasing levels of holiness, right? To get to the very center where the Holy of Holies was, you had to be the high priest. To get to the inner level, you had to be a Levite at least. Uh, To get to the kind of platform area, you had to be a Jewish man. Sorry, that's the way it was. But then you had the women's court and the court of Gentiles. And what was going on in Jesus' day and age is they filled up the whole court of Gentiles Gentiles, uh, to do things like money exchanging. And there's some interesting religious reasons for this because you weren't supposed to bring images into the temple and all the Roman coins had images of Caesar on them. So if you have to buy a sacrifice in the temple, but you can't bring images into the temple, what do you do? You have to exchange your Roman coins 
for temple money. And where do you do that? They'd have money changers set up shop all through this court of Gentiles. And it was pretty tough to bring animals to the temple all the way to Jerusalem by the time of Jesus' day. And so you would just bring money and you would buy the animal there. And so they had, you know, we're selling different animals um, to use for the sacrifices with a slight upcharge. Just a small transaction fee. Do you ever get those online? I want to buy movie tickets. The movie tickets cost $10. The transaction fee is $5. Like, what? (laughs) This is not worth it. This is what's happening, right? It's profiteering. You have to bring a sacrifice, right? It's like kind of a captive audience in a way. Like, you, you have to sacrifice something. It's like, this dove is not worth that much. It's like, too bad. Where else are you going to go? And it's filling up the whole court of the Gentiles with these business transactions. So where can the Gentiles go? There's no place for them. So Jesus is frustrated and angry that they've turned the place that's supposed to be for worship of the nations, and they've taken that space. So there's no space for them, and they've made it about making an extra buck, about business. And then he calls it a den of thieves. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, this is what he's quoting when he says den of thieves. He's actually quoting a totally different prophet who's indicting Israel at his time for different reasons. Jeremiah calls out the people by saying, do you steal? Do you murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? And then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we're rescued? So we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. What is Jeremiah's indictment? I had trouble even phrasing this correctly because basically what he's saying is that the issue is you're coming to the temple thinking that you can live however you want and then kill an animal and it's all good. Do you see what's going on? Right. No change, no true contrition, right? If someone says, I'm sorry, but they're planning to do it again, <laughs> they're not really sorry, are they? That's what the people are doing over and over again. Like, we're good. We can keep worshiping idols. We can keep practicing injustice. We can keep being corrupt. Just come to the temple and give an animal. And because we we did the ritual that God wanted, we're good. And Jeremiah's like, no, this is not what it's like. That's not true worship. And so when he says you made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves, he's saying like, it's like a refuge, right? A, A den is where, like a hideout. You've made the temple into a refuge for evildoers who have no intention of becoming anything else. So I was trying to think of a way to uh, apply this to us. And it brought to mind, um, have you guys ever heard the phrase before that the, the, the church is not supposed to be a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners? Have you heard that phrase before? I think that's true. The church is not supposed to be a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. And this is actually getting at like when people are like, the church is full of messed up people. 
Somebody's like, yeah. Yeah, Jesus said, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. It's full of a bunch of people who say, we're sick. We need Jesus to heal us. But it does bring up, if church becomes, we're sick. We're just going to be sick forever. Oh, well. That's where it can go south. Uh, How do you think of what happens here? So two images for a Super Bowl commercial. If you watch the Couch Potato Super Bowl, uh, if you saw the (laughs) Couch Potatoes watching Pluto TV, that's what that's from. Versus rehab or physical therapy. I think the church is supposed to be this, right? We're sick. We're here. We recognize that. But then God in his grace says, I want to help you get well, right? It's time to stretch those legs. It's going to be uncomfortable. And my fear is that some of us are so scared of self-righteousness or legalism or any kind of works righteousness that we're like, no, 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 God. This is about grace. I don't have to do anything. Some of, sometimes we have like this passivity. I just show up and God's going to work on me, right? This is the couch potato church. But if this really is a place of rehabilitation, physical therapy, then there's going to be stuff for us to work on by God's grace. And that part of God's grace means he walks with us, right? He lifts us up. He's like, all right, we're going to take a few steps. It's going to be painful at first, but it's going to get better and you're going to get stronger. Uh, I just started reading this great book by uh, John Mark Comer called Practicing the Way. And he's trying to get at this aspect and he gave this quote I had never heard before. He said it's from um, Augustine and uh, the quote goes like this. Without God, we cannot. I was like, amen. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Talking about transformation into Christ-likeness over time. Without God, we cannot. There's no change. You can't become like Jesus on your own. Stop trying. Without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. He wants us to take an active part and participate in this. And I bring all this up because Jesus calls out the people because in some ways, they're just going through the ritual motions and they think that makes them all good with God. They say, no, this is about heart change and life change becoming people of love and justice, and there's no change going on. You just think you're all good because you're doing the sacrifices. And I can't help but wonder if some people think they're good because they attend church or connection group. That makes me all good. No. God's calling is bigger than that. He wants to bring transformation to you and work from you, from the inside out, to make you more and more like his son. So here's the application question. Kind of a scary question. What would Jesus cleanse from our church? And what would Jesus cleanse from your life? And would you welcome him as the king, even if that meant he might flip over some tables? But don't miss this. 
because this is not the whole story. I actually met, left out this little uh, couple verses right in the middle of this account. Before Jesus cleansed the temple, it says, as he approached um, and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. This is a, a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem that did happen right around 40 years after this. In 70 AD, Titus came, surrounded Jerusalem, conquered it. There is not one stone left upon another in the temple precincts after that. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. This is an artist's rendition of the destruction of Jerusalem. It was tragic and terrible, and it changed forever the face of um, Judaism after this point. Because after this point, the temple was never rebuilt. So no more sacrifices in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do as he's looking out of the city and he knows, one, these people are going to reject me. I'm going to be crucified a week later. And two, because of that, because they've rejected God's plan and the time of their visitation, ultimately this is going to happen. Is he like, yeah, they deserve it. No, he weeps. He weeps. When God comes into our lives and calls us out, when he speaks to your heart through the Spirit and says, you got to let go of that. You got to clean that up. You got to leave that behind. Maybe for some of you younger, you got to break up with him. You got to break up with her. When God does that, it's not rooted in rage or anger. It's rooted in compassion and love. It's because he loves you that he wants to clean up your life. And so the last application is just to, maybe that needs to be moved deeper in your heart. Do you sense and do you know and do you believe deep down that when God confronts you, it's out of love, not judgment? <laughs> Philip Yancey has this illustration he gives where he talks about how when you look at Jesus, he's always raising the bar for what holiness means and what kind of life God desires us to live. And simultaneously, Jesus is always lowering the bar of grace. Who's welcome and who's allowed to follow Jesus. And we just have this tendency to want to do this. No, God's standards aren't that high. You can, you can get away with that. And we also simultaneously tend to be like, those people can't come. No, no, you got to clean up your life first before you're welcome. And Jesus does this, right? He says, come as you are. And follow me and become this kind of person. And I'm out of love for you. This is, this is what I want to get you to and bring you to. Do you know and believe that God's correction and judgment is rooted in his love for you? It's kind of like families in a big way. You have different standards for people who are family members versus guests, right? Uh, just the other night we had someone over and... Um, 
uh, we brought out the dessert and we're like, hey, feel free to take as much as you want, right? We have a lot of dessert. And then one of the kids like came up and whispered like, does that apply to us too? Like, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> right? You have different rules for family members than you do for guests. And the church family is kind of like that. There's different rules for family members than there are for guests. And actually, that, that's fitting. That's okay. Because if you're a family member, that means you've chosen to follow Jesus with your life. He's your Lord and your master, and you've said yes to submitting to him. And so we hold each other to that standard. And you're, if you're a guest and you're following, just checking all this out, and you want to know more about Jesus... We don't hold you to that standard. We're like, yeah, find out more about Jesus. We'll point you to him. We want to hold both of these together. That's what Jesus did. And so today, uh, I want us to close in a prayer. I want to invite the worship team back up. And this is one of those few times, actually, where when I looked at the possible songs to use for responses, like, wow, this is so perfect. The song is called Hear Us From Heaven, and it's just a song form of a prayer. It says, open the blind eyes, unlock the deaf ears. Come to your people as we draw near. And it's both this prayer that God would work in the minds and hearts of people we know and our neighbors and open their eyes to see the good news and unlock their ears to hear the the good news and believe it and see it. But it's also a prayer that God would make this a place for his glory to dwell. And I don't mean this physical building. I mean this gathering of people that he would cleanse whatever he needs to cleanse and clean up so that people see God in his heart, in our midst, in our groups, in our worship. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in prayer and song together. And if there's something specific you would like prayer in your life for or to talk further about, we do have a prayer team in the back corner. Um, If you're watching online, you can actually submit prayer requests to us online, and we get those as a staff, and we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. But let's pray together now in response. Jesus, we ask together that you would give us soft hearts towards your correction, just a willingness to be led where you want to lead us. Because the truth of us is that none of us has every single little thing about you correct and right, which means there's always going to be throughout our lives something you need to correct in us. And so give us humility. God, would you give us a heart posture that welcomes you into every area of our lives, in our homes, in our church? God, would you give us a desire for holiness and a desire and a willingness to let you clean up whatever you want to clean up in our lives and hearts? And under it all, would we see your heart of love for us, that that's what drove your son, Jesus, ultimately to the cross, and that that is still your heart for each and every one of us today. Your unfathomable love for us, help us to see that underneath and behind your correction. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.